podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion. I would especially like to welcome our new listeners from Hungary and our many followers from the West Coast of America. I would love to hear from you direct, so do get in touch with me via our Twitter or Facebook page. Today we are back in the paddock, or sales ring to be exact, with our guest Nancy Sexton, one of our leading Bloodstock correspondents. Nancy writes for the Racing Post and is the Bloodstock editor of Owner Breeder. She is also the European representative for Schumer Bloodstock. Enjoy the show. Hello, Nancy. Welcome to the paddock and the pavilion. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you very much for joining me. When I emailed you earlier, about a month ago, you were across in the United States at the Keeneland Sales. Yes. But most of us now, we're lucky if we get into a car. What's it like? <laughs> what's it like traveling by aeroplane at the moment and arriving at an airport? Well, I hadn't been away for uh, for months, as most people. I mean, you know, most of the population. And um, I actually thought. I mean, I'd, I mean, I had my documents saying that I, you know, I could go to the sale and organised by Keeneland and they have very good contacts and Homeland Security out there. But I did arrive at Heathrow thinking, I, you know, I would be probably lucky, lucky to get out there. And was it really worth it? And when I when I turned up at Heathrow, the, the terribly, very nice guy at Homeland Security went, oh, I suppose you're going to the Breeders' Cup because he'd had a string of them, you know, string of um trainers and owners and jockeys and then sale participants and um anyway you know just arrived and sort of carried on with business really um oh yeah it was quite eerie coming back there were only 30 people on the plane including crew and then you know coming back and having to do quarantine and all that but it was actually quite smooth and actually quite nice without many people there <laughs> if i'm brutally honest <laughs> do you still get the in-flight movie and uh, the evening meal and things like that yeah, yeah. We've still got that, yeah? Yeah. No, they're doing their best, in fairness. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the flights, I flew into Atlanta, a lot of the flights coming back have been turned, um, changed into cargo, or they've been cancelled. Um, and obviously, you know, there aren't that many flights anyway. But no, it was quite, it was a different experience, that's for sure. And you have oh. to feel for all the airlines, you know, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable, but just wonder how many you know will be able to keep going and um, staff involved and and all that but um, yeah a few, quite a few racing people did manage to get out there and you know adhering to all the protocols and all that and there were loads of Irish and English and French at the sales and um, it's, it's great because you know business does need to be done and you know the Breeze Up boys came back from Keeneland in September with a, a load of yearlings and you know it keeps the whole wheel turning. Well, thanks for that. Um, let's start by finding out more about one of our senior Bloodstock correspondents. Uh, how did you get into racing in the first place? Uh, it's, it's, it's same with most people, really. Family were in it. Um, not in a major way. Um, you know, we, my uncle ran a, um, a small stud farm, but it wasn't a major family business. That, you know, I mean, that was the day job was sort of working in the in the family firm in Salisbury but beyond that the hobby very much so was racing and horses and you know and the could had horses with David Ellsworth and Bill Marshall and um 
go racing whenever he could, really. Um, it was probably easier for smaller breeders then. You pick up stallion shares, make money out of them, do the horses yourself, breed race horses as opposed to sales horses. And, uh, you know, it's just instilled in us that you know, racing was, you know, good fun, great people. And, you know, just very lucky to be able to sort of go racing and go on the gallops and sort of, you know, meet people along the way. So when do you remember the first day you went racing? Or? Oh, I was very little. And I remember being very tired. I was, I was I think we had a runner with um, Martin Bosley at Newbury being dragged around by the hand and um, not really enjoying it. <laughs> and then um, one memory that really does stick in my mind, I was told um, by my father that there was a, a very good filly of Peter Chapelheim's running at Salisbury that day and I probably needed to come out of school to watch her and um, she, that was Balanchine who um, she won at Salisbury first time out and then of course she was bought by Godolphin off the back of that and I remember that and um, fond memories of Salisbury ever since because that was our local track you know and you'd always see a nice two-year-old there or you know I remember seeing Sir Percy run there and um, nice knowledgeable crowd and um, just a friendly track you know. Um, so it was in your blood then yes? Uh, racing. Yeah definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But I think it is, with, you know, with a lot of people, especially if they're working with horses, you know, you look at all the studs around, they've, they've, their families are in it, you know, and it's just second nature to them. Um, now, now, not this year quite so much um, because of, of the, the uh, pandemic, but normally you do quite a lot of travelling in your job. Yeah. Uh, just for listeners of the paddock and the pavilion, Briefly, could you give us a sort of rundown of the sort of sales calendar during a typical year? God, it's not it's nonstop. Um, you know, a lot of people would choose to cover Australia. So, they, you know, there'd be January, Magic Millions, Inglis, Caraca. Um, and then others might focus on America and then Europe. I mean, if, if you chose that way of life and wanted to do every single sale, you'd never be at home. But I suppose in the Northern Hemisphere, yeah, you'd, a lot of people would start with the breeding stocks in the beginning of the year. Some people would go to Keeneland, others would sort of stick in Europe. And then the breeze up sales start in April and go through to July, well, late June, early July. And then oh, you've got the national hunt sales going on on the background, um, store sales going on throughout the summer, more breeding stock sales, more horses and training sales. And then... A lot of people would go out and do Keeneland, and that's two weeks of, you know, September yearlings. And the Breeze Up boys would work that sale really hard to look at as many yearlings as possible. And then the yearling sale season, Arcana in August, Doncaster, Goffs, and then two weeks of Tattersalls, and then it's just non-stop. And then the breeding stock sales after that, and then it all starts all over again. So it keep, keeps you busy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. out of mischief, yeah. I think. That's right. Now, the leading bloodstock auctioneer in Europe is Tattersalls. Now, yes. how important is that for uh, the industry and for for this country? It's the barometer of the market. I mean, it does have competition from Goffs and Arcana across Europe. But, um, you know, it is it would attract it, the majority of the, you know, it would attract sort of a lot of the better yearlings, especially from British base vendors um, and you know, you've got your two weeks of um, yearlings in October, another two weeks of breeding stock. 
you know, a few people, your vendors would pick and choose where they send their yearlings, and rightly so. You know, if you've got a sharp horse, you're going to send it to Donkers. So if you've, you know, some horses stand out better at the Orby, some horses need a bit more time. But yes, it's um, from a market perspective, um, those two weeks in October are probably the most important of the year. And they're very good at getting the international buyers in and just, um, you know, giving a you know, true reflection of the market as a whole. So, I mean, book one must be like Christmas Day for you going to uh, park paddocks. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you see lots of lovely horses and, um, you know, and um, the, the sort of the cream of the crop, really. Although the same would hold true of the Goff's Orby sale. You'd see plenty of lovely horses there and for some breeders, the cream of their crop. So, yeah, both sales would be, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're really top end stock. And, um, of course, you get to see all the, you know, meat the best you know the top buyers and the certainly the, the some of the bigger international people that would probably only ever come over once a year you know nice to see Mike Ryan and he comes over once a year and Chad Brown when time allows and so yeah it's um it's like a traveling circus you know but that's the one where everybody you know congregates and visits. So when you say international you've just mentioned uh, Americans there what sort of nationalities do you get at uh, at the the book one sale? Oh, everybody. I mean, the Japanese have done very well buying out of there. They couldn't um, yeah, buy quite so many this year. There were very few attended. And they've really embraced the online platforms. They bought a lot online at um, Keeneland. And I suspect they'll do so at the mayor sale. But the Americans, they've been a, it's a real trend of the last couple of years, um, buying uh, more more of our, you know, European bred yearlings. Mike Ryan started started it and did very well with his first group. I think he only had four or five in the first group, and at least three that I can think of turned into great stakes winners, and it's grown from there. And uh, I think I think he bought 17 this year, and Peter Brandt bought another eight. Um, and then last year, Liz Crow came over and she bought a couple, and they've and one of them t- won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies Turf. So it's it's a, a real trend, you know, the growth of American interest in these horses, but it's it's completely justified. And this year, the uh, bidding process you mentioned there about online, that changed. Um, how did that work this year? I think it worked well. Funnily enough, at the full sale this week, a few of the buyers are bidding online, even though they're actually there. Um, <laughs> it's... it's um, you know, initially it's sort of they're being anonymous, aren't they? And now we know who who these people are bidding 300 grand on falls online. It's sort of they've lost their anonymity very quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I'd I'd say it's growing. Um, like I say, it'd be interesting to see how it works next week. I should think a few of the international buyers will um, embrace it further, especially if mares, where you can probably buy them off a video if you need to. Um, yearlings is a bit different. Falls is a bit different. But um, I think at Keeneland, it was these, um, you know, online bidding really took off. And um, it's going to be something we, we see more of, certainly. Uh, but like I said, I don't think if you've got a yearling or a foal or a two-year-old, it's probably something that, um, you know, you're going to be better off being present at an auction looking at a horse. There's nothing like looking at something in the flesh, you know. Mm, yeah. Now, it must be a long day for you when you go to the sales can you just let me know what a typical day is for you? Yeah, it's um to be honest, I've probably taken on too much because um 
you know, we, we start looking early in the morning and it uh, depends where I'm working for, really. And then if I'm doing a report, I mean, I don't do the blogs now for the Racing Post and that used to be a very long day. Then, you know, you were there. When, when you say early, what sort of time is, is that? At 7.30, they're showing. Yeah. You know, which was interesting yesterday because the fog descended and um, none of us could really see what we were doing. Mind you, some falls, that's probably better. And, <laughs> um, it, you know, and then, you know, they're selling quite late, Tattersalls occasionally. Um, so, yeah, it can be. But it's great. You know, there's great crack and great, you know, great people. And it's nice to see everyone. And in a normal year, there'd be plenty of bad behaviour, which, you know, makes it worse because then you arrive hungover the following morning. And, um so actually, that's been quite nice this year, actually being sort of fresh headed for most of it. Oh, so no late nights. No, no. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you tried. <laughs> and that's the thing you miss the most then. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, then you know, Keeneland, that's, yeah, that'd be about the same. Um, you know, I work for Chad Schumer and he's very diligent. We look at everything. He um, more or less everything in the sale. And, um, you know, they were selling 300 a day. That can be quite challenging. But we split it up and um, go through everything and, uh, you know, and then he'll have a list of probably about 60 that he bids on and, you know, he'll get some and he won't get others. But yeah, so that, but you see, Keeneland will always end sort of five o'clock in the evening. So that's a bit different. You know, you've always got an end, whereas Europeans tend to linger over individual lots. But you must spend a lot of time reading through the, the catalogues before mm. you've even attended. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of it's luck, but you also have to, you know, get as not much knowledge about everything as you can, particularly who owns the horses, who bred them. And that's half the battle. And then, you know, pin hooks and updates and potential angles to a pedigree. You know, it doesn't always work out, but a lot of it is, yeah, it is knowledge and um, and then hope for the best. Yeah. And how, how do you, I mean... I, you know, I follow the look at the size chart and I know some sort of lines. But how do you know as much as you know? I mean, it's like, did you like history at school or how did you get to know what you know? I mean, I, you know, I couldn't do it with any other subject. I think it's the same with any, anybody in the industry, though, as well, to be honest. I mean, we all because we're around these horses all, every day and around the industry, you know, it becomes second nature as it would for someone in art I suppose or someone looking at the financial markets or whatever you you get an understanding of it now if we left it for six months didn't read the TDN or EBN every day we probably would lose an awful lot of knowledge or didn't attend the sales even because you know what the market wants is very different to what's actually happening on the race course sometimes so and trying to predicting to try to predict that is can be even more challenging than actually following what's going on because I would imagine it's it in some ways, it's quite harder because the, the racing industry, bloodstock, has become more international mm. than than it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. And I don't know how people there. I mean, there are people out there who follow it so religiously. I mean, the jumps, the the European side, the American side and the Australian side, they've got it all. I couldn't do that. And that's, you know, I try and follow the Australian side, but I wouldn't know as much as, say, you know, a few of the people who do work that side, or plenty of them. Um, it's, you know, there is there is sort of information overload. But if you're trying to, if you're working for clients, or you, you've got to do your best and try to, you know, make, sort of make the best of it. But 
you know, I'm I'm lucky with um, working for Chad Schumer. That, you know, he's in the American industry. He's engrossed in it and has been for the last 30 years. And I think we bounce ideas off each other and work away with that. And um, he probably does the same a little bit with me, with the sort of the European side, what might work out here. And, you know, if there's anything he could buy, you know, to race in America and all that. But I think, you know, if you look at who's successful in the industry, there's usually a team of people. It's not one individual trying to keep up with everything. And figures wise at um, at book one and the sales in general this year, how how have they gone? They were surprisingly resilient. I mean, you, you go up to tats and, um, you know, it was like nothing was going on, apart from obviously the protocols. They were, tats were lucky in that Sheikh Mohammed decided to play. Um, yeah, he did underpin the market to a certain degree. But, they were, you know, the stock were there. I mean, there was a, there was a very good catalogue. The physicals matched up for the most part. And there was, there was good competition. Now, he is more selective. You know, people aren't going to take a chance on a sire. They're not going to take a chance on a weak pedigree or a weak individual. Like, you know, so the middle market and the lower markets, are, you know, are tricky. Um, but, no, I mean, it was in, incredible. You know, I think the average dropped 13% from you know i think from the previous high which was you know the sale had been growing year on year anyway and you know all the players turned up and it was a very very good sale with a very good atmosphere and book two was incredible as well that was very very good and again Sheikh Mohammed, you know decided to play and buy plenty of horses for andre farb and that helped as well so it was good sale. and book three was good too well talking of a superstar um frankel uh known even by people outside of racing how successful has he been off the track oh he's 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 been yeah he has been very good his stats are very good black type winners of runners and foals of racing age places and right up there look i mean he's had every chance to succeed he's he's you know great depth of um, support from judmont and some of the world's top breeders people are always knocking for that um you know the expectations are incredibly high but he's he's i think in my book he's backed them up and i would have no hesitation in using him you know he's uh, classic winners and plenty of group one winners that he's done very well in japan so you've got that market wanting them he's yeah he's yeah he's a good he's a good stalin you know logician and annapurna and quadrilateral and he's had you know good two-year-olds good three-year-olds older horses stairs you know milers very good miler in japan um he's you know he, he now now the next chapter is obviously cracksman's got his first foals a few frankels retiring to stud we're now seeing mares by frankel produce foals be interesting to see how that side of it develops but um, great horses don't always make great stallions though no no not at all but he had every chance like i say he had the support he had the you know obviously the race record the owners the, the looks the pedigree um you know, quite often these very good racehorses, sometimes, you know, if they don't have the pedigree to back it up, they can fall in a hole. And we've seen it, you know, plenty of times. But, you know, if they if they have the right support and the, the pedigree, then they they quite often, you know, they do live up to expectations. Um, See the Stars is another example. You know, he great pedigree, great racehorse. And, you know, he's a, he's a now a leading sire. And generally, do you, do you get what you pay for when you're buying a, a yearling? Well, it's all luck, really, isn't it? Like you could, you could, um, you know, the best 
physical the best you know for coming off a good stud with a nice pedigree and all that and so many things can go wrong and that's partly the beauty of it because it gives everyone a chance you know that something that costs next to nothing still has you know as soon as you send it into training it you might as well put the balance back at zero because you know anything could go go wrong or anything could go right so I suppose um you know the only time that doesn't really hold true is a filly with a big pedigree she'll always hold a residual and um you know if you spend 300 grand on a filly with a very nice pedigree she'd probably still be worth close to that even if she never ran um until proven you know otherwise at stud and frankel did you get to see him racing at all yes yeah many times um i think the first time when was it the royal lodge when we it was the last royal lodge at Ascot, i think and that was when we all, you know, realised that this is probably something very special. It's really, I think Treasure Beach was running in the same race and he made Treasure Beach look very, very pedestrian. And then, yeah, I think, when did I, you know, a few... You must have seen him at Newmarket, yeah. Yeah, seen him at Newmarket. Yes, yeah, so and then he won the Dewhurst, didn't he? And then the Judmont International, that was another very, very good day. That was um, the whole of, I mean, York erupted that day and then when he came back and won the champion stakes again Asker was you know buzzing so yeah he's the, I mean he's a tremendous horse and a great presence to him he always accompanied by bullet train I remember that and you see him on the gallops going out with bullet train and uh yeah it was, it was great and of course uh, you know the story of Sir Henry Cecil and um you know the whole the whole story was was good yeah so when you go racing um and you pick the race card up do you look at the form or do you look at the breeding it depends, I think. It's like anybody. If you um, if it's a maiden, probably look at the breeding. Well, you would, you know. See yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it was, um, you know, the handicap or you know something else, you you know you'd look at the form. You'd have to, you know, and um, then work it out from there and hope for the best. And do you get to go racing quite a lot? Well, I did. You did? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I fell into that really, didn't I? Very much this year. <laughs> I fell into that. It reminded me of my question I recently had with um, uh, Richard Friedman when I asked him about the Melbourne Cup. What would it be like this year? And he just said, "Quiet." Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Which yeah, is a good answer. But, yeah. Uh, so yeah. in a normal year, do you get to go racing a lot? I try and go whenever I can. I mean, I'm, um, you know, it, lucky I live in Newmarket, so I can go you know to meetings and what no i try and go whenever you can i think it's important to see these horses if you can you know and sort of get the general vibe around them you know if they're fancied or if they're being backed or if they're not fancied and surprise someone you know but yeah it's and all the major races um you know it's like i don't think anybody's been this year at all i mean i was lucky i worked for um imad al so i was lucky enough to go to the champions day but it was eerie Oh, it must have been, yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was great to see the horses. Absolutely lovely. Um, but it was, it was pretty strange. And everybody said the same. You know, um, when you do, you know, it's lovely to be able to get the chance to go to any race meeting, like mm. it's been, you know, in the COVID world, being let out. Mm, but that's it. Um, when you actually get there, <laughs> it's a bit different. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that day you'd have seen two. Holly Doyle wins, winning, yeah. winning a Group One, and two yeah. Tom Marquand wins as well, and Brilliant. that would have been such a fantastic day if people had been allowed to be there. Yeah, no, it would have been, it would have been. 
But then, you know, Ascot tried their best. I mean, this is the whole thing. Everybody's trying their best and the staff are wonderful and all that. But of all the courses, not to have a crowd. I mean, that one, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so big and empty at the best of times. Um, but anyway, look, it was it was a great day. Very lucky to be there. And have you got, in all the times you've been racing, a favourite day's racing you can recall? I suppose um, I was lucky enough to be at the Breeders' Cup when Blaine beats Zenyatta. And I'll get shot down for this, but I was a Blaine fan and I backed him. And um, they came flying past and the whole track was shaking. I've never seen, felt anything like it. And that was amazing. And then, of course, Zenyatta was beaten and the, the track sort of deflated. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a pretty, that was a brilliant um, day's racing. And I suppose, um, well, Frankel's Judmont International, that was that was good. Um, yeah, you know, there's so many, really. It's, it's You're just lucky to see these horses, you know. And um, I was very little. I went to Elharb Starby, and I've always, you know, thought back. And that was great. Sat in, you know, in the course in the middle of the field. I, I loved Elharb. And, I'd, you know, and this little black thing came flashing past. And, of course, I backed him. So that was great. And then last year, out of pure sentimentality, I bought a half-sister to Elharb with Chad Shima. And we ended up doing quite well out of her. So that was that was nice. And have you got a favourite horse and why as well? Um, I suppose <laughs> unoriginal, Frankel. Although um, I think Zarkava's underrated by history. I think what she did in her three-year-old season, especially Philly, was remarkable. And she wasn't straightforward. You always got the impression there was a lot left that she wasn't giving you or giving um, Royal de Prey. And, um, you know, he's, she was, you know, she won the arc doing sort of handstand she's very very good and um and see the stars he probably never got to the bottom of him either he was sort of the only ever did enough and that's probably why he was able to go through such a rigorous three-year-old campaign yeah um i mean it's all about frankel 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 because he's so exuberant and good you know great to watch but um you know i I hope history looks upon see the stars with sort of similar admiration because he was and he was very well trained you know and he was a good horse yeah, because he won Group 1s in successive mm-hmm. months, didn't he? Yeah. He did. He did. I don't think it had ever been done before, because he, he won a group, yes, as you say, in successive months. Um, I mean, Nashwan did that Guineas Derby Eclipse, King George um, quarter, didn't he? But, you know, I think See the Stars went through right through the summer, didn't he, by winning Group 1s. Um, yeah, so he was very special. What about your favourite race course? And do you go national hunt racing occasionally as well? Yeah, yeah a little bit. I'm dragged along. Um, goes to Cheltenham. Things like that. My favourite race course. Um, probably somewhere like Newbury or Salisbury. Enjoy Salisbury. Nice, friendly track. I say you tend to see a good horse there, especially in the Maidens. Um, Goodwood's very picturesque. But Goodwood can be, it's all or nothing. It can be absolutely beautiful or vile, depending on the weather. Um, but yes, yeah, so I probably Salisbury or Newbury. Well, that's quite timely today with uh, racing being yeah. on at Newbury. Well, thank you very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion. Oh, one other question I was going to ask. What about the future for, for Nancy Sexton? What uh, Are you going to write a book or, or have you already written one of those? Or? I just I take as a freelance journalist, you have to take each week as it comes and um, just go from there, really. Um, I'd like to have more horses. I'm, I've got no horses at the moment for the first time in a long time, which, you know, is it's a bit like setting cash on fire having horses, but it's quite um, it keeps an interest anyway. Um, 
but uh, I don't. Yeah, we'll just see see how it goes. Really, could be book, could, you know, more consultancy, you know, whatever people want really, and I can get away with. <laughs> well, hopefully next year you'll get more travelling, which will be a lot better. Anyway, and you'll be be able to get on the race course. Yes. Um, that will be a a positive. But yes. thanks again for joining me today on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Brilliant. I would like to give special thanks to Margot Webley for her PR work and voiceovers on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Thank you for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network.